Good morning. What a privilege we have uh, knowing Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to know with assurance. And it is good to know, too, that we can do nothing without Him. And praise God, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want to ask you to do something right now. I want to ask you to open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read three verses today as Jesus is bringing the Sermon on the Mount to a close. We're going to read Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And these are the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord God, we thank you that we can open your word today. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. Thank you that you have spoken and you've spoken truth we need. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, we ask, us, we ask you to move us in the direction you want us to go. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. In almost every area of life, there is some sort of summary, a wrap-up, some way to know it's almost over. In about 30 minutes or so, give or take, 10 on either side, I will say something like, and in conclusion, let me be honest, it's not give or take 10 on every, either side, it's give or take 10 on the back side there. Uh, 30 to 40 minutes or so, I'm going to say in conclusion. Now, in speech or in literature, you, you have a summary statement. In law, you have closing arguments. When you go to the store, they tell you how much you owe. You pay it. They give you a receipt. You leave. Even in pro football, you've got the two-minute warning. Whatever the case, there is usually a bottom line of some sort. There is a conclusion. There is a verdict. And then some action or decision that is expected or required. Well, Jesus here in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel is bringing the Sermon on on the Mount to a close. He's bringing the plane in for a landing. The, The wheels are almost touching the pavement. And he has been giving this invitation to enter the kingdom of God. And he's been doing it now since chapter 7, verse 13, when he said, enter by the narrow way. He said that few enter that way, that it is a hard way, not an easy way, that God's only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. It is the polar opposite of the world's way that says, have it any way you'd like, make up your own way. But God's way requires entering alone. God's way requires nothing in your hands. No works, no self-righteousness, No pride. It requires a humble heart. 
knowing it is spiritually broke without Jesus, hungering and thirsting for a righteousness it does not have on its own. Now, in the context of the narrow way that leads to life, Jesus, we saw this last week, showed the importance of true teaching versus false teaching. You see that in chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. And now Jesus is pointing out the importance of being a true follower of Christ versus a false follower, a false one. Now, Jesus warned of false prophets. In verse 16, he said, you will know them by their fruits. In verse 20, he says, you will know them by their fruits. And now he warns of the false words of false followers. J.C. Ryle said, The Lord Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application. He turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. R.V.G. Tasker put it this way, It is not only false teachers who make the narrow way difficult to find and still harder to tread. A man may also be grievously deceived. You see, self-deception is the worst kind of deception. And Jesus is saying here, just because someone claims to be a Christian doesn't mean they are. Just because someone says they're a follower of Christ doesn't make them one. A verbal confession of Christ doesn't mean the person has a repentant heart. God is most concerned with the heart, not the words. Now, last week, we ended up with the idea that our identity matters. That most important is not what you are known for, not your reputation, not your good name, but whether or not you've come to know and worship and love the one whose name is above every name whether you really know Jesus, whether you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, with that in mind, Jesus is dealing here with several crucial issues that we need to be aware of. They are important issues. They're life and death issues. He reveals three important truths. First, that not everyone who claims to know Christ is going to heaven. Second, that many will try and justify themselves before God. And third, nevertheless, God's verdict stands. What God says is the last word. So I want us to take a look at each one of these one by one. The first being this, that not everyone who claims to know Christ is going to heaven. Look with me at verse 21. Jesus said this. Now, we've got to test everything we think with what the Bible actually says. So some of what I say today might, might uh, clash with what you think, but I'm making every attempt to portray and to present what the Bible actually says, specifically what Jesus says about the matter. Jesus said in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it. People are going to say things to Jesus. They're going to say good things to Jesus. Lord, Lord is a good confession. It's a good orthodox confession of Christ as Lord. It, it acknowledges His deity, that He is God. It is an expression of worship. It's a good confession. But not everyone who calls Jesus Lord is a Christian. 
Some are false followers. Jesus says that not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. Now there are two words I've got to point out. Two two verbs in the future tense in verses 21 and 22 that show two aspects of God's kingdom. The verb will enter shows that the kingdom of heaven is not yet present and that entering it was a future reality. That's what Jesus' original hearers would have thought. The other thing is, is the verb will say. Many will say to me on that day. That indicates that judgment will come before the establishment of the kingdom. There will be a judgment. They will be speaking to Jesus in their own defense at the judgment. Not everyone infers that those who, some who call Jesus Lord, will not enter. As Jesus says in verse 23, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Now Jesus' hearers would have understood him to be speaking of a physical kingdom that was sometime in the future, but that has application for our lives right now, today. It is best understood for us, if we talk about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, as Christ's rule and reign in the hearts and lives of believers now, and his future return and reign. Now the whole issue of who's in or who's out is not a matter of someone just saying. If it was, we could say all sorts of things and say, well, I said it, it's true. That's what people are doing. In our, in our society today, a lot of people will say, well, I said it, that makes it true. That there's no objective standard of truth and you can make up your own. Not true. See, the whole issue is really a matter of God's will versus man's will. About what God is, is willing to happen and what man is saying should happen. In fact, go with me to chapter uh, 1 of John's Gospel. We're going to be in John's Gospel for a little while, so you'll stay there with me. But John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The, the Word created the world. The Word became flesh. But look with me at verse 12. John has said that the true light that enlightens every person who gets enlightened has come into the world, but the world has not accepted, has not received him. And verse 12, though, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That those who come to Christ are born again by the will of God. They call him Lord, Jesus says. That many will call him Lord, which is true, which is biblical, which is appropriate, is orthodox. But if they do not know him, it is a false profession. A false profession. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but, and here he's going to say, who will enter heaven? Who will do it? Look, at, look with me back at, at Matthew 7 and verse 21. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does God's will. Very straightforward. Very simple. And by the way, this is the first use of the term my Father in Matthew's gospel. 
Jesus is pointing to something that's evident in the whole Sermon on the Mount, that he is the sole authoritative revealer of the will of the Father. The determining factor of whether someone is entering heaven or not is whether a person obeys God's will. So it's very important for us to know what is God's will. We, we need to know the answer to that question if we want to know who's going to go in, who's, who's going to enter, right? So the question has got to come up, what is of utmost importance to know um, with regard to Jesus as it relates to us? What is the will of God for us? Now we know that Romans 12 verse, and verse 2 says that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, let me give you three things. The first is, is something that I'm sure you can guess. It's this. The first thing that is the will of God for us is to believe in Jesus. Very simple. But that term believe, it gets thrown around very loosely in our, in our day. And you could believe something but not live according to it. That's not the meaning of the biblical word believe. If you believe, you are throwing all your eggs into one basket with God. You are staking your life upon it. You are trusting in Him completely. You believe that chair would hold you when you sat down and you put everything on it. Everything you've got. You believe. Full commitment. Not a casual acquaintance. So we must believe in Jesus. Now, I asked you to stay in John with me because now we're going to go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 36. People are questioning Jesus' authority, his testimony of himself. And then he says in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's important. And the Father who sent me, verse 37, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. Now he's speaking to those who were rejecting him. His form you have never seen. Verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now, Jesus is speaking of himself. You do not believe me, he says. Verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures bear witness about Jesus. And verse 40 says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You refuse to believe. Now, chapter 6 and verse 28 uh, start at verse 27. In the context of Jesus feeding the 5,000, in the context of Jesus walking on water, Jesus is now going to speak of himself as the bread of life, spiritual sustenance. He had given them food, and he says in verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes. Yes, he wants us to work for what we have. Whoever will not work, Neither let him eat, right, as the scriptures say. But here he's contrasting spiritual realities with physical realities. He's saying, don't be so concerned about what you're going to eat for lunch. Be more concerned about where you're going to spend eternity. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, on the Son, on Jesus, God the Father has set his seal. 
key word. Seal is a, uh, a, a certificate of genuineness. It is a, an approval seal. God has set on Christ his seal. Then they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What do we need to do to do the will of God? Do what God wants us to do. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in Jesus. You need to believe. God wants us to believe in the one he has sent. In Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We are to believe. John chapter 3. Now most of us can quote John chapter 3 and verse 16. How many of us can quote what comes before and after? John chapter 3, a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at nighttime. They asked him a question. He said, Rabbi, verse 2, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can you be born when you are old? Can you go back into your mommy's tummy and be born all over again? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physically, and of the Spirit, spiritually, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus says, how can this be? Jesus says, are you, you're a teacher of the Jews and you don't know these things? And then... He says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's the judgment. Jesus said that. This is the judgment. So first you must believe in Jesus. What else? It goes right along with belief, and it can't be divorced from belief. Obedience. You must obey Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, If you love me, you will do what I say. If you love me, you'll do what I say. It can't be divorced from belief. Obedience flows out of belief. Belief assumes obedience. You are with Jesus. You are with his program. You are along for the ride. You are committed The biblical thought of belief cannot be separated from this idea of, of obedience. And the third thing as well, bearing fruit. Because belief leads to obedience and it leads to people recognizing that you are in league with Jesus. That you are with Christ. Bearing fruit. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 8, By this is my Father glorified. If you bear much fruit and so prove to, me by the, to be my disciples. Verse 16, he said, you did, not, I did, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that remains. So this idea of belief 
and obedience and bearing fruit is all God's will for us. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse three says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth in Christ likeness, your growth in Christ. Second Peter 3.18, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the people that Jesus is referring to gave a verbal confession but no moral commitment was attached. Their lips moved, but their heart didn't. They called Jesus Lord, but never submitted to His Lordship. Never obeyed the Father's will by believing and then obeying and then letting God bear the fruit. In the parallel passage here, Luke, in chapter 6 and verse 46, has Jesus saying this, Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord, but do not do what I say? Puts it right together. So the first thing, the first thing is that we we must believe, but not everyone who claims that they belong to Christ is a Christian. The second truth that we see is that many will try to justify themselves before God on the day of judgment. Look with me at verse 22. They're going to give it their best shot. Their closing argument at the judgment will be, Lord, did we not? At the judgment, before Christ. Look at verse 22. On that day, and that's the judgment day, on that day, many will say to me, they're going to have the goal to say to Jesus, inferring that God somehow overlooked some of their qualifications for getting in. Lord, did we not do all these things? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? They're going to be falling all over themselves, justifying themselves before God, trying to. By works of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. People will claim to do things in Jesus' name. People claim to do things in Jesus' name all the time. Big things. Prophecy. Healing. Miracles. But if they do them without the right motivation, it's false. They make the fruit the root. It becomes really a matter of God's work versus man's work. We started this service with Titus chapter 3. For those, the, the, the chosen few that were here when the service started, I love you all. But there was a lot less in here when we started. And I just wanted you to know, I read Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And what, what it's about is when the kindness of God and, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us in context of believers. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, his undeserved favor. By the way, I walked out of the service for a while and had to go get something out of my office, so please, please, I'm just glad you're here. I really am. Um, but here's the thing. Many will justify themselves before God, and it's really a case of man's work versus God's work. Christ's finished work is effective for salvation. Hebrews 4.10 tells us to rest from our works and rest in His, in His finished work. Our works are the fruit, not the basis of justification. Justification, making us right in God's sight, is God's work. 
We're to be doers of the word, to be sure. James chapter 1 and verse 22 through 25 tells us that. To be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, who fool themselves. But be a doer of, of, of the word you hear. And we know James chapter 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. Several times there. In fact, he says, you say, I've got faith, but not no works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. The works is the fruit of the faith. See, false Christians may do some amazing things in Jesus' name, but it's meaningless because they're deceived and they're deceiving others. They do it to attract attention to themselves, not God. Oh, by the way, miraculous works are not proof of the will of God. They can come from entities other than God, including demons and people. God does miraculous works, but miraculous works can also be done by demons and people. If you don't believe me, jot these verses down and look them up. Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16. Acts 19, 13 through 16. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. And Revelation 13, verses 13 and 14. Revelation 13, verses 13 and 14. Many are going to try to justify themselves before God based on what they did. They say, you've got to let me in because I did all these things in your name. But the third truth we see in this passage, and we see it in verse 23, is nevertheless, no matter what, God's verdict is going to stand. What God says, God is going to pronounce a verdict regarding their eternal destiny. And no matter what they say, no matter how hard they protest, no matter how many things they can claim they've done that they think qualifies them to get into heaven, in the final analysis, it's what God has to say that is the last word. He alone, when it comes to the final analysis, He alone says who does or doesn't enter the kingdom. Now Jesus says those who don't believe have already condemned themselves. Verse, verse 23. He says, but I will say to them, there you've got, in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. But on that day, many will say to me, and then Jesus now says, but I'm going to say to them. I'm going to speak to them, and I'm going to let them know. By the way, when Jesus said, I will say, or I will declare, those, that's a huge word. That means he's going to make a statement. He is going to bear witness in a legal sense. When Jesus used that term, that word is a strong word. It means to bear witness in a legal sense. He is going to make an official proclamation where the relationship between a person and Jesus is stated in a binding way. What this signifies is once Jesus says it, it is done. It is finished. No more discussion. This is at the judgment. And what he said he will say is, I never knew you. Basically, he's going to say, you, you think you knew me. You didn't. I never knew you. By the way, that's a phrase. I never knew you was a phrase that was used by Jewish rabbis when they were going to banish someone. Jesus says he's going to banish people from his presence because they were not known by God, nor did they ever know him. One day, Jesus will exercise the right that only he as God has. That of making the ultimate 
pronouncement of where someone will spend eternity. It's something only God can do. John chapter 5 and verse 22. Jesus says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Now, some people look like they belong to Jesus. But they never truly were born again. They never truly were saved. They never truly were regenerated by the Spirit of God. Humanly speaking, they never chose to follow Jesus. They never decided to accept God's free gift. They rejected God's free gift of eternal life in Christ. So they would go into a Christless eternity. And Jesus will say to these people, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you, he will say. He says, I, I, I don't know you now, I, I never did. And what it boils down to, what it will all boil down to on that day, is God's word versus man's word. And which one are we going to go with? Paul, by the way, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, gives two evidences um, about what God says about who is genuine. And we're asking that question today. Are you genuine? And, and here's the, the person who, who has God's seal of authenticity, okay, a certificate of authenticity. Um, the, here's what it says. The solid foundation of God stands having this seal. Now, this, the seal, again, is a symbol of ownership, a symbol of authenticity, okay? So the solid foundation of God stands, and, and it's with his symbol of ownership on it, so we know our context, and here's two statements. Number one, the Lord knows those who are his. Check it, check it. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, I believe verse uh, starts at verse, somebody tell me, just call it out to me. Huh? 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse, I'm sorry, my ears are, plugged right now verse 19 i'm sure you said that already but god's firm foundation stands having this seal bearing this seal the lord knows those who are his first thing the lord knows who belongs to him and the second thing is let everyone who names the name of the lord who calls jesus lord abstain from wickedness live a clean life live a good life before god live a godly life before god based upon belonging to christ okay can't get to heaven by your own good works but God will produce good works through your life once you come to faith in Christ. So there's this solid foundation of God that has a seal of authenticity from God, his seal of ownership on it, and it's this. God knows those who belong to him, and everyone who names the name of the Lord should abstain from wickedness. So we're to rest in God's knowledge and live a clean life, live a godly life. Look for fruit in your life, but don't base your standing with God upon it. God looks for evidence of our sincerity in our good works of obedience. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We are his workmanship, speaking of believers, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now that flows from a heart that has been through Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We are his workmanship created for good works. Now, there are two responses this passage of Scripture um, requires of us. And the first has to do with our life between us and God. The second has to do with us and our treatment of other people. So let's start with ourselves first. With regard to your life, you need to be 
um, sure about where you stand with God. No one else can do that for you. You've got to take care of that yourself. It's between you and the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. There's this self-examination that, that God wants to take place, and you've got to do it. The spiritual exam that needs to take place is between you and God, and in the final moments of your life, no other question will matter. But do I know Jesus? No other question will matter. So how do you know if you're really a Christian? It's a really important question. How do you know? Let me give you three questions. First and foremost, we've we've touched on it already, but do you have Jesus? Do you have Jesus? John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. The witness is this. The testimony is this. In the context of believers, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And here's the test. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. If Jesus isn't in your life, you don't have eternal life. If Jesus is in your life, you're saved. Everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Jesus, uh, the, the Bible says. Acts 16.31 So how do you know? Do you have Jesus? Do you believe the gospel? The true gospel of Jesus Christ? Not another gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a false gospel. They have a different Jesus. But the real Jesus from the Bible, the real Jesus from the Bible is God. He's the only mediator between God and man. He is Lord. He is sinless, impeccable, not able to sin. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He ascended to the Father and he promised to return. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Apart from anything you can do on your own. See, the Bible says that prior to coming to faith in Christ, we, were spiritually, we are spiritually dead. And God makes us alive with Christ. We know that by nature, we do not seek after God. That our hearts are not inclined to seek or love or worship God. That we're at odds with Him until we realize that we are in desperate need of his grace, that we, have fallen, that we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so we must have Christ in our life. We must believe. That's the first thing. And by the way, when that comes about, you have a new identity in Christ. You're a new creature. The old things have passed away. New things have come. Unbelievers will tell you that is arrogant to make a distinction between people like that. That there are some who are with Jesus and some who are not. But you have become a new creation. You are adopted into God's family. You weren't before. And unbelievers will will say that making that distinction is, is arrogant. But what could be more humble than admitting that you're not God? And admitting that you need Him? What is more humble than that? That you say to God, I am not you, and you are above all, and I need you. That's the most humble act in the world. So, do you have Jesus? The second question is, is the Holy Spirit at work in your life? 
Is, is God the Holy Spirit at work in your life? That's going to come about in, in several ways, but is there any evidence? Is there any, the Bible calls it fruit. Is there any observable change? Or do people say, that person's a Christian? What do you desire most in life? Is there a hunger for God in your life? Is there a hunger for His Word? Is there a hunger to be with His people? Is there a hunger to share the gospel? Is the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Is there a spiritual pulse that you can feel somehow in your life and people can see and observe and say, what's different about you? Something's different. Last question I want to throw out because this is probably the thing that most believers struggle with the most. So many people over the years I've come across struggle in this very area. What about security and assurance? What about security in Christ, eternal security? And what about assurance of salvation? You see, in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's false followers with false security. And then you've got a bunch of real followers who aren't really sure they're going to heaven, who don't really know if they're a Christian. And I've run into so many people, and it makes, it makes me so sad. And I will say this. Some people, we all pretty much really ebb and flow. I mean, we go through periods of doubt and things like that. But there are some believers that stay in that realm, and they always think they're, they're going to do something, that God's going to reject them. God's going to throw them back. But they're not a keeper. Many true followers lack assurance of salvation. They're worried that they might lose their salvation. They're worried that if they are, if they're really truly saved and they're not aware of the security they have in Christ. It's like, it's like living in, being insecure when you're really the most secure person in the whole world, but you don't know it. You're not experiencing it. It's like living at Fort Knox and being afraid, always afraid that someone's going to break in. It's like living in a house with the best security system ever made and 500 marines circling your house at all times protecting you and cowering in your living room wondering if someone's going to break in John chapter 10 and verse 27 through 29 Jesus gives us very simple very straightforward very comforting words and I know that even those that struggle with assurance of salvation know these words but sometimes they just don't stick I know I know But here's what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. So here's a gift given from God. And they will never perish. Shades of John 3.16. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You're safe. If you're in Christ, you're secure. And God wants you to be sure of it. You see, eternal security is a, is a truth. It's a, it's a doctrine. It's a teaching. Assurance of salvation is a state of being. A lot of people that have eternal security aren't assured of their salvation for some reason. God wants you to be sure. God wants you to be confident in in his eternal and amazing and life-changing, transforming truth and live in light of it because it gives you freedom to serve him. If you're always wondering that you might do something that slips up and you'll, you'll be 
you'll be tossed out. You're not going to be free to serve him. And by the way, I found that over the years, it's not the ones that have a tender conscience that, that really need to be worried. It's the ones that are hardened in their hearts that don't care, that are in danger. The ones that are like, oh, am I really a believer? Rest assured, you're probably just fine. True believers are securing Christ. God knows, God knew that we would waver. That's why he built so many great security features in. I just blogged this in between the two services. The Bible teaches the eternal security of every true believer in Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from anything they can do on their own, are eternally secure. The security comes from God who chose them before the foundation of the world and predestined them to adoption as sons and is in the process of sanctifying them and will someday glorify them. Now I want you to write this down. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 through 14. I want you to go and read that today and notice there is a guarantee God gives. There is a guarantee. Find the guarantee. Then Romans 8 verses 28 through 30. I want you to notice, go look that up and notice three words called, justified, glorified, all in the past tense, as good as done. It's as good as done, and God is in the process of fulfilling his promises. So take heart, you who love Jesus, but waver in doubt. Jesus says that no one, including you, can snatch you out of the Father's hand. You're safe. And, can you, did you ever think about that? You can't even do it if you're truly saved. You say, well, I want out. Maybe you're not, you weren't in the, to begin with, you know. Uh, and, I, and, and a lot of times there are people who are wayward and people will say, well, they became a believer when they were five. I'm clinging to that promise. What promise? What promise? Here's the thing. If someone is truly saved, they will repent at some point. If not, they might not really have been saved. And there are probably a lot of people we know that we need to be sharing the gospel with. We need to be calling them to repentance and faith. Just because they said they were saved 20 years ago and they live as if they are not, they're either wayward in Christ or they're never saved to begin with. And either way, you've got to call both of them to repentance and to faith. Okay, one last thing. In conclusion, okay, so maybe I went past that 40 minutes thing, probably, all right, if you're keeping track. Um, what should our response be to unbelievers? We've got to talk about that. We need to look with eyes of hope on all people. We're not God. We don't know anything but what we see and hear and think. So we've got to love those whom Jesus loves. We've got to realize that once we were lost and we've been found, our response to the lost should be, Jesus loves you more than you could ever know. Therefore, repent and believe. Turn from your sins and believe in him. Believe. We need to um, realize that God knows the hearts of all people, and sometimes, I know I do this, I write people off. I'll think, well, they don't, they don't have any, they don't have any, um, any uh, desire for spiritual things, or you know, they don't care about Jesus. So I will put them in a place. It's the reject file in my mind. I, I put them in the hopeless case. I'm glad that someone didn't put me there. I'm sure people did. But I'm glad that there were some who didn't put me in the hopeless case file back in early 1980, 81, when I was way lost. 
See, we think they're a lost cause, but what we need to be thinking is, if they're still breathing, there's hope. If they're still breathing, there's hope. God knows who's going to come to him, but we are called to faithfully and unashamedly preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. That's what God calls us to do. Jesus changes lives. He changed mine. Have you changed yours? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for changing my life. Thank you, Lord, for giving your church marching orders to go and make disciples of all the nations and baptizing them and teaching them and letting them know you're always with them. And Lord, help us not to write anybody off as hopeless. Lord, you know those who are his, those who are yours. You know the ones who have yet to acknowledge you that you've you've chosen, but yet to bow before you. We know, Lord, your salvation is a sovereign act from start to finish. And we have no right to presume who is worthy to hear the message. Lord, we know you want us to tell everyone in our path about the life-changing truth of the gospel. So, Lord, give us grace to keep planting seeds and to keep praying and to keep seeking and taking every opportunity you give us to preach the gospel in every setting we find ourselves. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.